everyone, and welcome to the European Startup Show, where every week I talk to exciting startups in Europe to learn more about their challenges and strategies they use to scale their business. In today's episode, I have the two co-founders of CoinRule, Gabriel Musella and Oleg Giberstein, who are joining me to discuss the wonderful world of crypto trading. CoinRule lets you automate your investments across multiple platforms to protect your funds and catch the next great market opportunity which is algorithmic trading without having to learn a single line of code. CoinRule currently has over 16,000 investors globally using its platform and was awarded the best of beginners 2020 by CryptoTrader. So welcome to the show, Gabriel and Oleg. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Hello. I understand both of you and the third founders, Denek Hoffler, originally met during a Mass Challenge Accelerator program in London in about 2016 or 17. Can each of you talk me through what motivated you to join this accelerator program and then why you decided to start CoinRule? You want to go ahead? Yeah, sure, sure. We joined Mass Challenge uh, with our previous company. So in my case, it was a a fintech startup. So it was a a payment app with a point of sale for uh, freelancers. And uh, yeah, I mean, Mass Challenge was, was basically an American program that is held usually in Boston. And for the second year in that year, 2015, it was held in London. So um, they give a lot of support, a lot of mentors, and they don't really get any equities. So that was the main point. We could get a uh, uh, you know, free office space in central London, as well as a big network of mentors. And also the most valuable thing was to connect with other startups in the same stage. So usually I get from other entrepreneurs most of, most of my precious advices that then I apply in my daily job. So that was what brought me to apply at Mass Challenge. And then I believe probably for my co-founders, Oleg and Zenek, who was also the same, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So <clears throat> in my case, I had just left banking and I went full-time on my first startup, GuideLighter, which was a career mentoring platform. So I was basically part of the program, and there were so many great people. And there were some people who kind of stood out more than others. And that's how I got, there's a bit of a story actually behind that, but that's how I got to meet uh, Gabriele and Zdenek. And then obviously a bit later, Gabriele and me got together. Gabriele already had the concept and the, some of the designs for CoinRule. And then we, we got started and then later on Zdenek joined. So I had this further down, but maybe I'll ask you now, cause it seems like a good segue. But when you guys came together, did you all have this interest in crypto trading? Why did you focus on that specific asset class? I would, I would say yes. Personally, I bought my first coins in 2012. And then I sold it and I made like a 6% return. That was Bitcoin. So I've always been interested in that, in that space. Initially, it was like a game because some of my friends in Boston at MIT, when we were there, like, you know, they were like talking about this Bitcoin and all this like paper from Satoshi. So it started like really like a game. And then I went back on 2016 on Coinbase just to check uh, my account and what happened. And, and actually, I found like this other coin that was actually Ethereum. And then I bought a little bit more, a little bit more. And then I saw it went, went going up. And then I found myself in the 2016 bubble. So, and that's where actually I understood that FinTech was moving more to Towards tokenization, and I started really uh, reading every day news and more more material on on tokenization, DLTs, blockchain, and, that, and that's when I understood that's the future. And then, since like very fast paced market, I, I really saw that DeFi is now becoming more relevant, and it's even more the, the kind of the more innovative 
frontier of, of cryptocurrency. So we started with cryptocurrencies a little bit because of it's interesting. It's a lot of fun because it's very volatile. In fact, now all the people that were in FX, all the traders were moved to crypto because it's much more fun. And on the other side, also from a strategy point of view, it's the best way to start a company in a regulated market. So if we were to have a fintech company and start with stocks, bonds, or with a more kind of regulated market, you need to put down at least 50 to 100K just to start testing a proposition. Working with crypto means you're working with an unregulated market. It's the far west, so there's a lot of uncertainties, but at the same time, you can reach your users and test your proposition straight away without uh, having the FCA knocking at your door. I see. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Getting regulators involved is <laughs> going to completely slow down a startup's journey for sure. You know, for a layperson like me, when I think about cryptocurrency, it feels like a bad word. Something you do if you're involved in shady or illegal activities. So could you give the audience who's listening a little bit of background on what's happening with crypto trading today in the world? Sure, um, I can comment on that. I'd say it's, it's interesting. Obviously, we still hear this type of thinking sometimes from people. But to be honest, the market has massively recovered and also changed over the last two, three years. So actually, the price of Bitcoin is almost at the level of 20, late 2017, which at that time, everyone was talking of a bubble. But clearly, people not have still not quite picked up that the market is almost back to where where it was. So that in itself is already quite a strong validation. There are all those people who never who said, oh yeah, you know, uh, Bitcoin, it's like tulips, it's like the next uh, bubble. But show me the tulips that have recovered, you know, three times from a 60, 70% drop. This year alone, there have been two major developments. One is that more and more institutional funds, but also corporates, have started to buy Bitcoin specifically. So for example, Square, as well as uh, one other, it's called uh, one other corporate, it's called Microservices. It's a less well-known company, but it's also listed in the US. They announced that they are going to have uh, Bitcoin on their corporate balance sheet, which is huge. I mean, there's a publicly listed company that has shareholders that has to go back to their board and they're holding part of their balance sheet in Bitcoin. Then you had um, PayPal who now started to accept crypto payments and then the other big thing that's been going on is the rise of decentralized finance, mm -hmm. which I don't want to go into the technical details, but, but think about it this way. Today's financial world is all top down. All the innovation comes from some, you know, quant PhD at the hedge fund doing some dark magic. No one understands what's happening. That's it. Decentralized finance is a composable type of finance where the Lego blocks are in the hands of normal people. So these are public protocols. Anyone can build on them. Anyone can innovate on them. The next financial innovations will be coming, you know, maybe from a kid in uh, Kenya or from someone in, in Brazil, not necessarily anymore from Wall Street. Now, of course, the traditional finance people don't like that idea and they think that no one who doesn't have, you know, that their background should be involved with that. But obviously they're wrong. I mean, all we see from the tech world is that more and more things get democratized, access and opportunities come down more and more to normal people. And that's what crypto enables. So when I think of crypto, that's what I think of. And I think more and more people think of that too. In terms of like illicit use cases, 
I mean, up to today, the number of big banks involved in, in literally in crime and fraud. <laughs> I mean, something like Bitcoin is super transparent, actually. No worthy criminal would want to use something where you can track every transaction publicly on the blockchain. Hmm, interesting. Well, you definitely are painting a rosy picture. So in your perspective, what is the maturity of crypto trading? Do you still feel it's nascent? Has it reached mainstream? Where is crypto trading today? Okay, I can go for that. Actually, I'm, I'm like finishing one book that's called Flash Boys. And it's like 60% in, in the book, actually, into the book. They talk about when in 2010, uh, frequency traders became like like basically the base of Wall Street. So all the all the 40 plus exchanges that trade on Wall Street, they were all manipulated by high frequency traders. And and in a, so in a, in a way that that technology and the methodology they were using and, and all the all the tricks they were doing, they were adopted by everyone of exchanges and that was the business model of the exchanges. So basically to outrun, outperform uh, customers' orders. Uh, but then at some point, the, the, that complexity became just too much that no one knew, everyone lost control. So you had Sunday crashes on the exchanges. The technology was like really having a lot of bugs. People were taking advantage of, of, of customers. And even the banks, they were making the code so complex so that actually no one else could understand what they were doing. But what they knew, they were actually that company, they were making a lot of money. So this process though, basically became 10 years ago already when the kind of the technology and digitalization came into, into trading with their several exchanges. And now I, I felt that with cryptocurrencies, Basically, it was just like a solution to all that craze that happened in 2010. And so it's basically with cryptocurrencies, you can know you have a full control of where your orders goes. You have full control of what you're buying from where. And you have also 100% security that your order is going to get filled or not filled. And also your fairness of price because you don't have many intermediaries. It's almost like cryptocurrency was invented by for like kind of as opposite phenomenon of what happened in 2010 with all the frequency traders scamming uh, users. So it, I, I see that balance. So now becoming mainstream from cryptocurrencies, what does that mean? So does that mean that the actual, the B2B market, so banks, hedge fund institution, investment banks will be actually adopting this technology on the backend and then the user will still be faced with typical interfaces that they see, like the mobile app, your broker, your bank, or are we talking that Actually, cryptocurrencies will solve the backend problem of the exchanges by providing, like, you know, speed, good prices, and the transparency and trackability, as well as providing a new uh, products to the users that they can have control of their funds. I believe that in the long term, we will have both sides, the front end and the back end, revolutionized and changed. But that's something that will take probably 20 to 30 years. But at the moment, I think the mainstream will be going through still institutions. So I can already see how the NASDAQ and all the kind of the typical traditional exchanges will be run on blockchain, on DLTs, with tokenization. And then after this will happen at the institutional level, then it will also stream down to normal people. And then at the point that also my mom, for her, will be normal just with their bank account on their mobile and probably in the back end, there will be all the tokenization and, and blockchain technology. But the idea that you can be your own bank that will come to, to people at some point in the future. Interesting. But let me just ask you, you have 16,000 plus users. Where are they? Are they in Europe? Are they global? Because 
I've also read about a few countries that have banned crypto trading. So can you talk about the geographical landscape when it comes to crypto trading? Sure. So actually, the majority of our users are in North America and also UK and Europe. But we do have quite a few users in places like Brazil, Nigeria, South Africa, Indonesia, the Philippines, and so on. So we see two things happening here. There's a lot of pickup by the traditional markets, but you also have a lot of aspirational people in developing and emerging markets who suddenly see the opportunity to access investment opportunities, which they didn't have before. If you're based in London or New York, it's very easy for you to buy, you know, Apple stock or Tesla stock. But if you're based in, let's say, Nigeria, it becomes much more complex. With cryptos, you can buy, for example, a tokenized version of a Tesla stock, and you are part of the same financial system from which you were previously excluded. So that's super exciting for people. And we see that a lot, like the enthusiasm we get from users from emerging markets, I would say is almost higher than what we see in the traditional markets. Is there any difference that you see in the user behavior from of emerging markets versus developed markets when it comes to crypto trading? Mm, I mean, yes and no. I would say just the other, just I'll continue on the point. You get sometimes, let's say from Western Europe or North America, you get some of like the more professional people. So those who, you know, have trading experience from traditional assets. So obviously because of Wall Street, because of the city of London, you have more of that level of expertise here than you have maybe in some of the other markets. Whereas like people from certain other countries, they approach it maybe more that they're keen to learn and like really understand how it works. I would say that's the main uh, difference. I see. Okay. Well, let's turn and talk a little bit more about your platform itself. Can you start off by telling me who is this platform meant for and what problem are you solving for them? Yeah. So our platform is for uh, normal people like hobbyist investors that spend usually one to two hours a week trading so we really cater for that kind of beginner to intermediate audience uh, that's a little bit different than what uh, our competitors or other platforms on the market do because they usually focus on the on 20 10 percent of, of the users that are very advanced so usually what you find is that you have a bunch of wall street people bankers that came out of corporate jobs with a lot of money and they start like an exchange or trading platform. Now that's like something of, uh, you know, done by a, a trader for traders. What we are playing here is a different game. We are trying to capture the market that is many, very fragmented and it's the, the, the basically the beginner market, the retail market. So we believe that if you have your savings, um, something like 70 to 80% of that should be uh, put in passive investments. So in a black box, you put your money there and you get your three, four, five percent per year. But then some of your funds, like the 20%, should be traded actively. So our assumption is that people have a brain and they can actually learn a basic concept of finance and then apply them with a tool like Conrule. So with Conrule, you can say, well, if Bitcoin goes down 3%, buy Ethereum at this specific price, given conditions like price, volume, market cap, also like more advanced indicators like moving average on RSI. And then once you've created your strategy in very few clicks, uh, you can press play and this machine goes on the market and trades on your behalf. 
So in all effect, you can create within a few seconds, you can create an algorithmic trade without uh, knowing how to code or without getting involved with all the technicalities of algorithmic trading. So we're giving basically back um, the power back to the people. We're giving people uh, you know, a tool that potentially till now has been only the domain of institutions. Uh, so if you give the, the weapon to the people, actually they can start fighting back against these big whales and hedge funds that are manipulating the market. I'm not uh, a crypto trader. So can you describe how your app or platform fits into the set of tools mm-hmm. somebody who's, who's interested in crypto trading would yeah. need? Like I've heard of digital wallets, I've heard of exchanges mm-hmm. where you actually do the trading. So can you talk about how they all fit together and where you fit yeah, in? Yeah, so, so in the cryptocurrency market, so there are like several steps, right? So the first thing is like you buy your first Bitcoin. So you go on a platform like Coinbase or Binance, it's a website, you go there, you, 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 know, you put your card and you buy, let's say, $100 of Bitcoin. You can buy even $10 of Bitcoin. That's the beauty of cryptocurrency. You can buy as much as you want. You don't need to buy one Bitcoin. You can buy also a fraction of Bitcoin. So let's say you buy your first $100 of Bitcoin on a website like Binance or Coinbase. You have it there. It's an asset. It goes up. It goes down according to the market. Then at some point, you, you see there are also other coins. So idea you would like to, to exchange them with other coins, so trade the other coins. And on these websites like Binance or Coinbase, you can exchange coins. That's why they're called exchanges, like the New York Stock Exchange, like the London Stock Exchange. And then you start doing these and you start getting excited. You can see some profit. But then you start understanding one thing, that you have... You start monitoring the market maybe when you're at dinner with your partner and then you start getting anxious because something is going down and you want to sell it. So something is going up and you want to buy it. And then you didn't set up specific automatism to do that. So the next step in this journey, it's actually, okay, let me look for a tool that can automate my investments. And that's where we come into the play. So we go on Google and you search for automation tools. All the stuff that you can find are very technical. They involve having libraries, programming in Python, or in the best case scenario, there are other competitors that still have very difficult interfaces because they use financial jargon. So when you find the coin rule, then it's kind of a little bit of more fresh air because you can see that there's plain English language and we help you automatize your trades in few clicks. So we bring automation to the table. We bring the ability for you to automatize your investment in a very easy way. Got it. So what do you need to nail in your app for you to get user adoption? Mm-hmm. Is it trust? Is it usability? What is it? Yeah, I can go on that. It's kind of the million, the billion dollar question, right? And if we know 100% the answer, we would be even more advanced. But the main thing I think is that users want to know what is happening and they want to know what they're doing. And a lot of users come because they want to make a return. They want to do something more active with their investments. And that requires a lot of trust. So they need to trust us. They need to trust the platform. They need to trust that they can do the right thing with that. So they need education. There's a lot of just the element of giving the users the knowledge the of how to use the platform. So like an onboarding experience, templates maybe, things that allow them to get started easily but also knowledge that helps them to actually understand the market and know what they need to do. So in a way, we are a trading company, but we're also an education company because that's such a huge part of what what we are doing. And then the risk here is what we need to avoid from a usability point of view is it's really easy to make it really complex because there are all these crazy features and charts and tools and like we can just add it all on 
and think that everyone will love it. And there might be a small group of very advanced traders that will love that, but that's not the market we're trying to serve, right? We want to be available for normal people. And normal people don't want to spend three weeks until they figured out how the platform works. So to kind of give that educational learning curve, keep it fun and entertaining the way how Duolingo keeps its users engaged whilst making our users better and better at taking advantages of market opportunities. That's kind of the narrow user experience path that we are walking and that we are putting into Congo. What about trust or is that not something you have to worry about because you don't hold the money? You only layer of automation and all the money is still with the exchanges. Yeah, I can just continue on that. So it, exactly what you said, the money is on the exchanges, which is great for the user. So it means even if someone hacks CoinRoll, they cannot access the user funds. And that's what we make very clear to the users. Okay. That, like we do not touch their funds. We don't have that liability on our end. Okay. Are you worried at all that the exchanges might start to offer this functionality themselves in the future? I would say like not because exchanges, uh, the big ones, their interest is to expand the ecosystem. So actually, we already have a few partnerships with the Kraken Future. We're in the broker program with Binance. We have Bitpanda as a partner, OKX, et cetera, et cetera. So we have like interest. We met with the, with the CEO of Coinbase UK and it was like, look, guys, you know, we either buy out companies like yours and we keep it in our uh, offering, like as a product, you know, with that branding, or, you know, we partner with you because we are very complimentary and you basically send more orders to our exchange. So for us, it's good. It's more traffic. It's more volume traded. Also, and the proposition is a bit different because, as I said, we are step two, right? So, automation is like something that cannot be embedded in an exchange where you have all the problems, especially because we don't touch the funds. So, we, we don't manage the order book. We don't manage specific mechanisms within the exchange. We are an aggregator on top of the exchanges. So, ideally, in the future, what we would like to provide is that you can buy coins on Binance. You can buy some cryptocurrencies. And then you can also buy some more traditional stock options from other exchanges, as well as buying some more advanced DeFi products. Right? So, you can buy several types of stocks in several exchanges and then be able to automatize them across exchanges. So this is our ideal scenario where we, we would like to be in, let's say, five years' time, right? So for us, just um, so for an exchange, just be able to provide the same service will not really take advantage of the arbitrage opportunities across exchanges. Uh, so that, that, that's why even if they want to uh, offer something like that, by nature, because they are connected to one exchange, they cannot really work with other exchanges. Where for us, since we are an aggregator, we will have that overview on the market. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, just, just maybe to add an example to that, it's like think of Amazon and Shopify. In a way, both offer access to, to products. Obviously, a lot of sellers on Amazon. Amazon could easily allow them to also build their own shops, but that's just not what they do. And that's where Shopify excels. Understood. That's a good analogy, actually. What about fees? What are the fees for the investor for using your platform? That's the beauty of our service that we are a SaaS platform. So we really believe uh, in transparency and showing the price of the, of the service. So without hiding it into any fees or volume or transactions. And that's what's most common in cryptocurrencies. And I think that's also why cryptocurrencies got sometimes like a bad name because they just hide gas fees and transaction fees everywhere. So you don't know really how much you're spending. For us, we present a very clean, clear monthly subscriptions. So it goes like you have a free plan uh, and then uh, you can do specific things on that. But then if you want to trade more, you go on a $30 plan, $70 plan or, or $500 plan that is more 
for uh, advanced traders. Uh, so by doing this, we are also perceived by the financial regulators as a software provider. So we have actually less, less hurdles in terms of legalities. And that means that we can focus more on improving the product and on, on customer care. Uh, in fact, our users really like our customer care. We have our head of trading room and always talking in the chat directly with them and also managing the group of traders uh, on Telegram. So yeah, the pricing is very straightforward and it's intentionally done like that. One element of uh, automated trading is that trust is the number one element. In fact, if you go on our website, we have all our profile there in clear, all the team is there. You are, we are very uh, easily reachable because trust in automation is very, very important. Okay. So in the beginning, you talked about why cryptocurrency and the fact that there's less regulation and it's like the wild, wild west. So can you comment on the state of legislation in regulating these virtual currencies? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I can talk about that because actually we are just in the process of registering with the FCA as a crypto asset company. So that's something that has been introduced to make sure that crypto companies comply with anti-money laundering and know your customer uh, regulations. Now, for us, that's not really relevant because we don't hold the user funds. So obviously, there is no money laundering possible on our end because we don't actually hold the funds. But still, we thought it's a good thing if you know we make sure that we are, again, transparent mm -hmm. on that front. Now, in terms of actual legislation, I think the steps that the regulators are taking are, first of all, ensure that like terrorism finance doesn't happen, anti-money laundering is fully complied with. So that's their number one priority. The number two priority that they're slowly starting to get to is protect consumers. Now, that's an interesting one because let's say they don't necessarily always understand the market as well as, let's say, some of those consumers even, you know. Obviously, as a financial regulator, there's a risk reward between you want to allow for innovation, but you also want to protect people from losing money. But losing money can actually be sometimes a good thing. You lose money, you learn your lesson, and you don't do it again. But then if you prevent that from happening, then people don't lose money. They don't have that learning experience. And next time they lose even more. So for a regulator, it's, uh, it's, it's a fine line they have to walk. So, for example, the FCA just recently banned selling derivative products to UK consumers, so crypto derivative products. Now, without going into much detail on that, how can they actually control that? It's a global market, right? Like users just go into international exchanges. So I'm not entirely sure even how, how they think that would be enforceable. So I think the regulators are still also finding their way in this space. Mm -hmm. Like the way they will have to do it will have to change, but they need to actually understand that market first. And I think that's the process they are going through right now. Interesting. Do you think there's something that they need to do to make cryptocurrencies much more mainstream? I think they should start employing technologists instead of just people out of economy school. <laughs> because from, from first-hand experience, uh, with my previous startup, we went through a startup program with FCA to obtain a temporary license, e-money license. And you can clearly see that uh, our CTOs, our tech guys, talking to them, were not really talking the same language. And explaining even simple concept of what we're doing with our payment system in my previous company was uh, very difficult and was not really digested in the right way and was therefore communicated also in the wrong way to the public. Yeah, I've, I've had that experience in one of my startups as well, dealing with the FCA, which is incredible because they control so much of how the financial system works. 
hey, the Tatra is the most advanced financial regulator in the world, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's for a whole new podcast there. Okay, so let me turn the conversation about your company itself. So right now you're in the process of raising money through Cedar, which is a, a crowdsourcing platform. Can you tell me why you decided to raise money this way? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, nowadays, a uh, crowdfunding platform, I'd like to change their goal. So it's not anymore a platform where you can go and start from zero and then everyone sees your beautiful project and put money. It's more a platform where you can uh, amplify your round and also get out the message to a wider audience, for mostly for brand awareness. And, and it's, there's this kind of feeling in the UK, at least, that if you are a fintech company based in London, you need to go on Cedar. It's kind of a big validation mark. This topic, together with the fact that we didn't spend a single penny on marketing so far. So we actually acquired all, all our 16,000 users just with organic uh, marketing and a, a little bit of growth hacking. And I can expand on that as well later on if you want. We actually, these two components made us think, okay, like now it's time to maybe spend some money on marketing, get the name out there, being validated and also amplify our round. So that means that we brought in, in our round before even we opened the round on Cedars already around... I would say 80% of the round. And so we are already uh, kind of had like agreements with private investors and funds that already put the money uh, on the project. So when we went on private sale, it was a very funny actually situation because we went and we were like something in private sale, something like 85%. So I sent like three emails to selected people and they already basically reached 100% while still being in, in private sale. So I'd like then rush and contact the Cedars, our account manager saying like, can you please open the round you know, as soon as possible? Because you know, it's ridiculous. We are going public with 100% of the round already filled. But that's what <laughs> happened. And then people on the, on the Cedar platform, they see that the campaign has already reached their goal. So they see there's a lot of hype and traction. And so we reached 100 uh, 65% very, very quickly within a few days. And then uh, after that, it slowed down a little bit. And now uh, we are in the middle of the campaign towards the end where it's a little bit slow. I think it will be picked up again at the end of the last, the last week or two weeks. Uh, so the idea is to reach 200% and, and close the campaign. So the campaign will basically be topped around £500,000. You mentioned the growth and, and how you got your 16,000 users through organic can you talk to me a little bit about how you did that? Yeah, we had basically one good entrepreneur, again, another founder that uh, I always call a lot of my uh, friend founders because we exchange a lot of ideas. That, that's the best learning. And uh, yeah, you kind of got these ideas from marketing agents they were working with. It really, this idea really resonated with me. So I started creating an internal technology with my team. Basically, we generate systematically with the scripts a lot of original content that makes sense. And that's content in five different languages. And this content then gets shipped up in, in a form of landing pages that we deliver on, on Google. And uh, on Google, we have thousands and thousands of thousands of landing pages in five different languages, and they rank very well. They, they really capture very well the keywords of coins, of exchanges, of cryptocurrency projects, of uh, typical fintech keywords. So for some of them, we rank first position on the first page of Google. Uh, for free. So if you Google automated trading Binance, we are the first one, automated trading Coinbase, the same, and several other keywords. So that one is the major uh, point of traffic for us. Nice. Okay. So a lot of SEO basically is how you did it. Yeah. Really okay. optimizing SEO. And that's something that actually Oleg wanted me to read this book, uh, Traction, that was actually also from one of our other advisor. And this book, they, they showcase 52 methodologies for growth hacking. 
And the one was obviously SEO. And they say like, once you find the one that works for you, just go for it 200%. And that's what we did. That's, that's wonderful. Okay, so what is your future plans with this money that you're raising? What are you going to do with it? So first of all, we have uh, to deliver two kind of key product priorities. One is the simplest backtesting tool in the world. What's backtesting? Backtesting is a system that allows you to test the strategy based on historical data. So you have this trading idea that you want to try out, and you can actually check how would it have performed let's say in the last two years. So obviously it gives you much more confidence uh, that your system might make sense. All this, all the backtesting tools currently in the market are extremely complex. Like they're really like not made for normal people. We're building this, but for normal people. So that will be a key part of, of Coinbro. The other part that we are developing now is a strategies marketplace. So a place where users will be able to sell to share strategies, sell strategies, follow other traders. So make the whole experience much more social, much more like visible to each other, kind of more engaging as well. So that's two kind of critical features we are working on right now. In the medium to long term, I think Gabriele already mentioned that, but we want to be the gateway through which users trade cryptocurrencies on centralized exchanges, but also decentralized assets and also traditional assets. Yes. So you, you'll be able to trade today Bitcoin on Coinbase, tomorrow Tesla on IG Index or eToro, and the day after you might be able to access like one of the decentralized finance platforms out there. But all by building automated strategies through one interface on CoinGo. Got it. Wow, sounds like a, a very exciting journey ahead for you. Maybe you can share some of the mistakes that you've made and what you've learned from it. Okay, where to start? Okay. <laughs> I think that the biggest mistake uh, was actually probably uh, about people, people that you recruit and you have around you. So my previous comment actually uh, stopped because I just recruited a couple of people in my team that were not the right fit and it was obviously my error. I know that's like uh, probably obvious and uh, everyone talks about that, but uh, finding headhunting and scouting the right people and then convince them to come on board is the most difficult thing in the world because you're not Google. You don't have like huge competitive salaries yeah. at, at any stage till Series A or Series B. So you, basically it means that the first three years, four years of your company, you need to make some magics to be able to first understand what, what are the right people. You know, if you need a generalist at a specific time in the company or if you need a specialist. Uh, now, for example, we are in the moment where we are trans kind of doing a transition and we are just getting very, very straight, like specialists, because that's what we need now to actually run faster. So first of all, you need to scout them. It's not enough just to put some like a job, you know, job posts somewhere. So a friend of mine was telling me that on LinkedIn, he was, he was actually spending a big budget for recruiting people, but then LinkedIn was just sending him like the wrong people. So you need to scout them on AngelList, on Indeed, on like several groups, Slack channels, you're using your network. And then it's difficult also to understand if their objective align with your objective and if they are the type of people that can run a marathon. In our generation, they, we are really uh, used to change job every year, every two, three years asking for raise and asking just for more continuously because everything is so fast paced now. So, you know, in, in the job, you want at least invest on someone that stays with you at least a couple of years. Right. And then it makes sense if they also like evolve in your company or they move somewhere else, but recruiting and uh, understanding the right people is very important. Now, when you have a small startup, your first approach is always to, to kind of go with your gut feeling, but 
there are so many people that are also my good friends that I would love to employ because they are, they are a lot of fun. But then I understand that they are not the right people for the company. And now we are actually in a situation where we are looking at some of them that want to work with us. But you know, sometimes we have to say no, even if they are beautiful people, just because I see the team like a machine, people working together and, and each of them is a specific position and role and skills, right? So if you get someone that's pretty cool, but has the wrong skills, you know, that's the wrong position, then it's already the machine doesn't work well. So everything needs to be all organized and tweaked at the right point. And then of course there is the motivation element, the human element, but yeah, so recruiting and recruiting slow, it's very, very important. So even for positions that are very juniors in our company, so even if that position for interns that you pay very low money, actually we do three, four stages interviews. Sometimes if it's possible, also an exercise. And and understand that for some some like candidates, it's just like too much. We are not Google, but still you need to understand, you know, when to see our interests and, and it's important to make their life easier and our life easier just to get the right people on board. So yeah, spend 200% on, on that, especially if you are like one of the co-founders, one, one of the co-founders should be spend a lot of spending a lot of time on recruiting. And from my end, my biggest mistake also, one long list of them, but I would say also related mostly to the relationship with my co-founders in my previous startup. Again, my biggest mistake was that although I saw that the expectations were different among the three of us at that time, in my mind, I just pretended that's not the case. Basically, I thought we keep going, things fall in place, everything will work out. But the reality was that wasn't going to happen because the reason we weren't actually progressing was because our expectations were different. But at that time, I had left my well-paying banking job and like I had put so much into it that I, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, you feel because you've already put so much in, you keep putting more in, although it's clearly not working. And that's what I did during my first startup. There's one, just like the, the lesson from that, there's one of my favorite quotes from the physicist, Richard Feynman. Your first priority is you shouldn't fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. <laughs> I think it's incredibly powerful if you think about that because especially as an entrepreneur, you know you have to be an optimist, right? You have to take things that they're good because obviously you can always look at things bad, you can look at things good. Yeah. So you have to be that optimist, but you have to be that optimist who doesn't fool himself. Wow, how do you do that? I'm still probably not very good at that, but I'm definitely better at that now than I was uh, three years ago. Well said, but I think it's something that we all probably have done at some point in our life is fool ourselves. So it's normal. <laughs> okay. So listen, we've come to the end of the show, but usually at the end, I like to ask um, questions that are not related to your company. I call it my rapid round um, of questions. So my first question in that round is typically around books you've read. Are there books each of you have read that have made an impact in who you are and how you are? It could be fiction or nonfiction or both if you want. Yeah, I'll say two books, I'll say. Uh, one is the Borges f- Fictions. It's a lovely book. It's a fantasy book. I love Borges. So that's a novel. I always reread. I think I read like four or five times. And then another one is probably the biography from Agassi, the tennis player. Just because he lives like tennis and sport with like such an intense approach. You know, it comes from, from inside, from his stomach. And it's like very, very, very kind of difficult relation with that so because his father forced him into tennis in the beginning, but then he started loving it. So yeah, I think those two books really, one makes me like uh, kind of activate my creative side and the other one helps me persevere and, and run a marathon. 
the marathon that's called like yeah. building a startup and from from my side so the book that like really kind of changed my mindset four years ago five years ago was uh, tim ferris for our work week i was basically stuck in a relatively dry banking job and it's not even i actually like some of his later books more but at that moment it was such a trigger for my brain like that book really opened my eyes to what is possible that there are people who do things smarter and better and you can actually improve yourself and learn so that was a big moment for me and i've read a lot of really good non-fiction books since but that was kind of the starting point and then one book that i read as a teenager was all the king's men from robert penn warren which i actually just recommended the other day to gabriele as well it's actually a very timely book it's quite political it's about this populist U.S. governor in the 1930s. And it's taught from the perspective of his secretary, who's basically following along, but in a very passive way. Like he just describes things almost like uh, he's this passive observer. But, but, But this disconnect between things happening that he actually impacts, because a lot of the bad things that this populist governor does, he does through this passive narrator. It's a journey of the narrator becoming more active in his life. This book really taught me to think of my life in a more active way. I'm not just this passive voice observing things. I have actually an impact on things. When I read it, I was like 17, 18, and it really made an impact on me. Well, it's a perfect book. I'm going to buy it for my son. He's, He's 16 be the perfect book for Christmas for him. So thank you for that uh, recommendation. Second question. I know both of you have traveled and lived in different places. So what's your favorite city in Europe? But if you want to also mention one in the world, that's fine. But in Europe first. Oh my God, you're going to find a more uh, difficult question for me. I've been like a digital nomad for the last three, four years and lived in five countries. So I don't know. I I think before uh, COVID, Basically, I was becoming French, so I was actually in Paris and two weeks in Paris and two weeks in London. And then I know COVID came about and I came back to Naples after 20 years. So I'm enjoying Naples and the nice weather, nice food after 11 years of London. So I would say a mix, 50% of Paris and 50% a city that I really would like to live in is Copenhagen. I've been there several times. And yeah, the Nordics is something that always really attracted me a lot. So I would say one of the cities in the Nordics and Paris. (laughs) Nice. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about you, Oleg? For me, so in Europe, Barcelona, I, I love the place. I lived there for a few months, a few years ago. It's amazing. I have friends there. I know the place inside out. I just feel right at home. But I could also see myself living in like kind of one of the big but small town cities. So something like Porto, somewhere in the Basque, Basque country. Like I've been to San Sebastian. Sebastian, he always says, let's go there. Well, I haven't been there, but it's on my list. I highly recommend. Would I live there permanently? Probably not, but that's kind of also part of the answer. I want to kind of keep a little bit that flexibility. You know, I want to stay in places for like six to 12 months, but probably my base would always be London. That's my hometown these days, really. I always love this part of the podcast. I feel so energized hearing about Mm -hmm. places to live or travel to and Mm -hmm. books to read, especially in this lockdown. I always find this part of the podcast gives me a lot of energy. So thank you so much, Oleg and Gabrielle, for a wonderful and really interesting conversation. I wish you both the very best and I look forward to seeing how you both grow the company. Thank you for having us. Thank you.